All right, so Brian Gaston, welcome to the Wonton Wednesday podcast. And uh, yes, yeah, so I know you from you were the last staff NCO that I had in the corrosion control shop in my time in the Marine Corps. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> I'm the one that should be apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different different lifetime ago, my friend. How are you? I'm doing actually really well at the moment. I'm uh, I had a downhill of a 2022, and uh, then it started picking up the last two months, and then I mean everything's been going a lot better for me now. That's great to hear. Yeah, in short, I'm getting divorced, and uh, that's almost over. It's it's a good divorce. It's a very easy one. We agree on everything. It was just like a fucking letdown of a thing, but I mean. I don't know. Yeah. Cut bait and run, huh? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, all right, I, I know things are going to be better in the long run. I know things are going to be better in the long run. I just have to, like, get through today. Yeah. Well, back last you knew of me uh, in uniform at 204, uh, I was in the midst of my first divorce. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> things change quite a bit. Oh, they yeah. certainly do. I mean, I know enough people that have been divorced where, like, I had a lot of good resources and people to talk to. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. Just from yeah. people that we know from the Marine Corps, uh, Bates was divorced twice before he even got out. Uh, yeah. A uh, bunch of people I know from Airframes. Probably shouldn't mention them all. Because uh, this is a public yep. forum. And, uh, yeah, I got a bunch of other friends too, and like they were great resources and people to talk to and people I could lean on. Actually, Bates was a giant help. Like, I had like one conversation with him early on, and it like steered me in the right direction. I'm like, thank God for him. Yeah, I, I listened to your uh, podcast with Bates yesterday on the way home. It was uh, it was worth a chuckle or two. <laughs> yeah, hearing some of the stories about all the names that I haven't heard and. You know, what was it, 15 years, 16 years? So. <laughs> yeah, it's 15 years for me because this would be the year that I would hit 20 and would have retired. Right. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I left 204 in November of 2010. Wow. Yeah, I don't remember when I moved out of the corrosion shop, but it was you and Nixon and Bates. You guys were on night crew, and it was me. Uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Sergeant uh, Mercado or Kruger? Because I trained up Mercado Kruger. and Kruger. I trained yeah, up Mercado Kruger when I left. Yeah, Kruger had come over from A school. And they, they put him in there, but Mercado was, uh, yeah, do you know Mercado made it to gunnery sergeant and actually retired a couple of years ago? I did not, but that sounds reasonable. Yeah. He was good yeah. at being a Marine, and uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I believe that 100%. Yeah, Kruger got out a few years back, probably more than 10 years ago, as a matter of fact, and I think he's in Wisconsin. 
He is. I believe I've talked to him online a few times, and he's doing something uh, with Bel Joyoso Cheese. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. He's uh, hazardous materials, waste, byproducts, kind of the same thing that Bates does and whatnot. But, yeah, small world. Yeah, Mercado's out here still. Uh, I don't know what he's doing now that he's retired. But, um, yeah, very interesting to talk to that guy. He, he hasn't changed one bit. He's still very methodical and still very old. <laughs> he's, pro- he's probably the only person that I can say that to, considering my age. But uh, Well, yeah. we should backtrack, because okay. when did you first join the Marine Corps? Well... Uh, I first joined the delay entry program my senior year in high school in 1986. And I went to boot camp in October of 87. So I was almost a year in the delay entry program before I actually shipped off to boot camp. And I went to uh, San Diego because I was recruited out of Dallas, Texas. Which makes sense, yes. And. You went to the band, right? Yeah, uh, in, in a manner of speaking, you know. Um, Was it like the I, band that everyone thinks of, Eighth and I? Well, what it was was um, when I first signed my contract, uh, it was open contract. I wanted to go uh, into air traffic control because in the late 80s, that's when the you know, the huge uh, strike for the air traffic controllers during the Reagan era. And there was, you know, a a big push for everybody to get into air traffic control. And uh, the recruiter told me that all the school seats were filled up and there was nothing else. So I started to go in open contract and then he got uh, word that I was in, you know, in the band in high school, like a lot of people were, you know, back in that day, there wasn't, yeah. Computers were just coming out. You know, the Apple IIe was being taught in computer lit, you know, basic programming, basic understanding of computers, certainly not to the point that they are nowadays where they're held in the palm of your hand in the form of an iPhone or a Samsung or something like that. But uh, so air traffic control was what I wanted to do. And he says, nope, can't do that. What else do you want to do? And uh, well, I guess I'll go open contract. And he says, well, weren't you a musician? aren't you a musician in high school? And I'm like, yeah. And, you know, back even, I, I guess even now when recruiters hear of a, of a musician uh, wanting to enlist, it makes their hair stand up on the back of their neck because it's extra points or whatever. I don't even know. Back then it was called the QEP program, the quality enlistment program. And if you got uh, a musician on contract for the music field, whether it was a fleet, you know, Marine Force Band or a division band or uh, any of the, the smaller unit bands out there in the, in the fleet. Or in my case, um, I was exposed to the Commandant's own Marine Drum and Bugle Corps when I was in high school because they would come to the marching competitions that we would do in the state of Texas. And, you know, in, in Texas, bands are just as big as football. Yes. And, uh, you know, Friday, Friday night lights and all that kind of thing. So I was, you know, very fortunate 
to grow up in a, in a decent community, uh, a suburb of Dallas uh, called Duncanville. And growing up in Duncanville in the 80s was where everyone wanted their kids to be uh, for sports and, and you know, affluent um, scholarships and whatnot out there because all the big schools, all the big college schools would come to uh, Duncanville to do their recruiting and whatnot. So I, I uh, enlisted under the um, musicians program, under the QEP program, and uh, I had to take an audition. So being a musician in the Marine Corps, you have to actually be qualified to do it prior to enlistments, which is why they have uh, MTAs at the different Marine Corps recruiting districts that actually go to your school and listen to you audition, or you can send in a tape or whatever, you know, depending on how far away you are from them. And, you know, being right there in Dallas, I was near the MEPS, the uh, interest processing station. So they had an MTA there and he came out and listened to me and said, all right, sign here, initial here. And the next thing I know, I'm in the delay entry program. And uh, graduated from high school and did a little lifeguarding during the summer until my ship date in October of 87. And then I went off to uh, San Diego. And back when I went to boot camp in the 80s, we didn't have MCT. It was a 11-week uh, boot camp you know, first phase, second phase, third phase, graduate, get your EGA, and then go to your MOS school. We didn't have uh, this MCT thing that they have now. Of course, you know, that's been going on for 25 years, I'd say now. Yeah, um, I mean, I went through it. Yeah. Well, when I, uh, when I did my first four years, uh, my first duty station was in Albany, Georgia, um, they had a drum and bugle corps in Albany, Georgia. So after I graduated the School of Music in Little Creek, Virginia, after boot camp, that was a six-month A school, if you will. And uh, I went to Albany, Georgia for a year and a half. And then uh, Graham Rudman budget spending kicked into effect in the late 80s, actually in 89. So they did some sort of force restructuring with the music program and they turned all of the drum and bugle corps into bands so the fleet drum and bugle corps in, in albany and the fleet drum and bugle corps of 29 palms were converted into bands into fleet marine force bands so the albany band and the 29 palms band and then the only drum and bugle corps literally in all of the armed services that was left for active duty marines was at eighth and i because you mentioned eighth and i earlier so we had an option. We could lap move into a different MOS, get reclassed into a different job, or we could uh, take PCS orders and go to Washington, D.C. at 8th and I to the Big Red Machine, the Commandant's own. So that's what I chose to do because I was single. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. You know, I was barely 20 years old in, in, in 1990. And uh, so I went up to Washington, D.C., and I spent uh, from December of 89 until October of 91 in the Commandant's own Marine Drum and Bugle Corps in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then I EAS. I, uh, you know, back then it was the Montgomery GI Bill, Chapter 31. You know, 9-11 wasn't even a, a, a thought. You know, terrorism wasn't even a thing. You know, back then it was, you know, the Iran hostages and that kind of thing. And, 
Grenada back in 83. It was, in every, it was the middle of the Cold War. So nobody was really thinking about going to war. Terrorism wasn't on the, you know, on everyone's radar. And it wasn't the world we live in nowadays. It was just, it was the Cold War. Everything was kind of quiet. You'd go do your greenside training and go shoot your pistol and go shoot your rifle and do your MCIs and, you know, be a good little Marine and show up for work on time, you know? Yeah. So, so I uh, got out. I got out in 91 and I, and I wanted to go to school. I wanted to, to get a degree. I wanted to use the GI Bill. And back then, um, the government, the Treasury, would cut you a check for $400 a month. And I would take that $400 and have it sent directly to the registrar. I went to ITT Technical Institute. Uh, I met my first wife while I was on active duty in Washington, D.C., and we decided to get out, and I wanted to go to college, and I wanted to get a, a degree in electronics engineering. So I went to, you know, the old trade school, ITT Tech, before they, you know, were put out of business and sued, and, you know, everybody got their money back, except for those of us that paid our debt. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I got a, I got an associate's in electronics engineering technology, uh, with a, a bachelor's in automated manufacturing and robotics and that kind of stuff. So we did that for three years. And then I, I got married in 92 to my first wife and had two young uh, daughters. Uh, Taylor, my eldest, was born in 92. Um, Ashley, my middle daughter, she was born in 95. And Around 1995, you know, things were really tough. I graduated from school, you know, just like Bates was saying in his podcast when he went to MMI. It's funny he started talking about MMI because I was talking to him back then, and he was, like, trying to reinvent himself. And he, he was always talking about the motorcycle that I had, uh, and he was interested in, in getting into motorcycles. And I, and I told him, why don't you become a motorcycle mechanic? And I don't, I don't know if he remembers that or not, but we had those conversations. But... Mm-hmm. You know, they had, they, had, they had promised at ITT that you could get job placement and they'd help you find a, a good career once you graduated. Of course, they never did. And I had two young babies, you know, two and a half years apart. And every time you'd take them to the doctor, it was $50 to walk in the door. And I didn't have any money. I was broke. And my wife was a horse trainer and everything that she made training horses and working horses went right back into the business. So there was no real profit earned that way either. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go back in the Marine Corps. So in 95, I started talking to the, the PSEP, the prior service uh, enlistment program guy and the recruiters. And they're like, no, we're, we're not accepting PSEP. Desert Shield, Desert Storm's over. You know, we're doing a drawdown. They're not accepting anybody. You know, we're coming down on our numbers again, total force structure coming back down. We're not allowing Marines to re-enlist. And, you know, I'm like, okay. So I got in touch with the, the uh, commanding officer who at the time was a, an LDO lieutenant colonel, uh, Truman Crawford, and he was selected for LDO full bird colonel congressional appointment you know, based on the nature of the job, there's only one. What is LDO? Limited duty officer. Okay. Um, you know, like in aviation, the MMCOs of the squadron, the maintenance material control officers, when they become uh, 
chief warrant officers and they go to TBS and they learn how to, you know, manage aircraft in the squadron, there's a, a point in their career where they're offered the opportunity to go LDO captain so that they, they can become um, aircraft maintenance officers at the MALS and or the MAG and or the wing level if they get up to lieutenant colonel or higher. So LDO means you're not unrestricted. You can't go anywhere you want to. There's only specific MOSs that you can be a part of as an LDO officer. So that's that's Marine Corps wide. There's a lot of different MOSs in the Marine Corps that only allow that uh, restricted versus unrestricted. But um, where was I? What was my point? Uh, you got oh, a yeah, little the, LDO officer of your old right. unit. Right. And he said, I can get you back in. So in 96, I took an audition uh, when the Drum and Bugle Corps was in Dallas. Uh, I had separated from my wife and uh, things were kind of rough. And uh, I auditioned. And after I auditioned and was told uh, I made it, was able to go back in. Uh, my wife and I reconciled, and in the summer of 97, I went right back on active duty uh, as a Lance Corporal, because I got out as a Corporal. Uh, I had nine months' time and grade as a Corporal when I got out the first time. Uh -huh. uh, back then, back then they weren't handing out National Defense ribbons or medals when you went to boot camp that came later after uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So Desert Shield, Desert Storm was my first National Defense Medal after I was awarded a Good Conduct Medal, uh, my first enlistment. And, and then I went back on active duty in June of 97, almost 10 years to the day, or the month, I should say, of coming on active duty the first time. So. I was always 10 years older than my peers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 28, 29 years old, back on active duty as a junior Lance Corporal because your time in grade starts over. Uh, I had to lose a stripe uh, because of the amount of time that I had been out. I was out from October 91 until June of 97. But as you remember, you may or may not remember, when you when you do your first enlistment, you have an eight-year initial obligation, whether it's active duty or inactive duty or whatever. So I did four yes. years active and four years inactive ready reserve. And then my total separation where I wasn't on contract at all was from January of 95 to June of 97. So when I came back on active duty, they had to change your armed forces active duty base date against your pay entry base date so they didn't match up anymore they were different so my armed forces active duty base date adjusted from the time i came in on um, back in the 80s they gave you credit for time and service against your uh delay entry program yeah I so had my that adjust did you yep. they did they were still doing it but um so my pantry base date was like 1990 or something like that. And, or I'm sorry. Yeah. My pantry base date was 1990, but my active duty base date was like 93. So it was weird. But when I came back on active duty, I went right back to the same duty station that I had gotten out of in 91. I had to go right back to eighth and I right back to the same unit 
And because there's only one unit of its kind, those guys that those Marines, I should say, that I left behind in 91 were now all staff sergeants. Mm. And I came back in as a junior Lance Corporal and they're like, oh, I remember this cocksucker. I'm going to get this dude, you know. And so it was a lot of fun, needless to say, fun in quotation marks. I know what you meant. Yeah. So I did that until my last full season was uh, 2004. And in 2004, uh, I got in a little trouble. I had pinned on staff sergeant in 2002. Um, I did minimum time and grade from Lance to corporal, from corporal to sergeant. And then I was a sergeant for like three years, eight months, and I pinned on staff sergeant. And I, so every rank, I would jump ahead of a group of, of my peers, if you will. And uh, by the time I got to staff sergeant, I was almost back to where I was when I got out because uh, a lot of those guys were still staff sergeants by the time I made it back to staff sergeant. Because it was a real tight MOS. There was only so many, you know, spots for promotion. And the higher you went, the smaller the amount and that kind of thing. And you'd have to wait for those 20-year Marines to get out before you could get promoted. So, in 04, I got in a little bit of trouble. Uh, I was a staff sergeant in grade. And I got an NJP. Um, it was kind of like one of those good old boys clubs versus the, the the new kids on the block kind of thing mm-hmm. you know because you, you had the you had the divided camp in the unit there were, there were a whole bunch of old guys and there was a certain way they would do things and then there was the new kids that were coming in and it was a different way and it, you know the old guys didn't want to evolve because they're from the cold war and they're generation x the new kids they're generation y and they want to know why all the fucking time instead of just doing it and shutting up and coloring that kind of thing Mm-hmm. So I got in trouble. Um, I was told that I couldn't stay in the unit. The the old man LDO had retired, and actually in 2003, I think he retired in 1998. In 2003, he actually died of of uh, Luke Eric's disease. Holy crap! So he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't even out four years, and he had passed away. But the old guy was like. He was like 62, 63 years old. He spent 30, almost 33 years on active duty. 10 years, I'm sorry, 40, 43 years. He spent 10 years in the Air Force, and then he spent 32 years in the Marine Corps on active duty. That's he, impressive. Yeah, crazy. But uh, Colonel Truman W. Crawford, in fact, if you go to Washington, D.C., the barracks now, they have uh, the old band hall that was on the right when you walk in the gate is now Truman Crawford Hall and it's where the Drum and Bugle Corps now is. And the band got moved down to a new construction project. I say new, 20 years ago new. Uh, the Annex, which is way down on the other end of the bridge closer to Anacostia or not Anacostia, but uh, anyway, the Navy Yard. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I can talk in circles. Ask me something. <laughs> I have a actually pretty interesting question because I've heard from other people on other bases. What was 8th and I like on September 11th? I don't know. Um, we actually were on East Coast tour uh, September of 2001. The Drum and Bugle Corps 
back then would do a West Coast tour at the beginning of the year. They'd go to Yuma for three weeks and learn the drill. The silent drill platoon would come over with them, and they would do their thing. The color guard would join them like the last week, and then we'd go on West Coast tour, and we would do all the West Coast installations, you know, Miramar, uh, 29 Palms. We'd go to Camp Pendleton. We'd do our Battle Color Detachment show. But in the in the uh, fall, we would go on East Coast tour, so we would do all the East Coast installations, uh, Cherry Point, Lejeune, um, how, uh, not Havelock, Havelock is Cherry Point, but all the stuff on the East Coast. So we were actually at Cherry Point. Um, I was a sergeant, and we were staying in the transient enlisted quarters at Cherry Point. Mm-hmm. And we all got up that morning, and we were checking out of the DEQ, and we were on our way to Camp Lejeune to perform the show at Camp Lejeune. We were all standing in the TEQ office, turning our room keys in, and we looked up on the television, and one of the World Trade Centers was on fire. The first plane had already hit by the time I had gotten down there. And um, I remember uh, Clayton Young, a fellow baritone player, (laughs) he said, oh my God, there's another airplane flying around, and it's about the time we heard him and keyed into what he was saying and looked up at the television. The second plane hit the second tower. And we're like, oh, shit, we're going to war. Oh, fucking hell. You know, so everybody's pucker factor went straight to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And um, we got on the buses like we were supposed to. We made our way down to Camp Lejeune. But by the time we got down to Camp Lejeune, which was, you know, about an hour away. Yes. Uh, every Everything was on lockdown. The National Transportation Safety Administration shut down all the airports. Everything just went into complete lockdown, as everyone remembers. No one could make any phone calls anywhere. And then the next thing you know, the Pentagon gets hit by that plane. And my wife and children are literally across the river from the Pentagon at Anacostia Naval or Anacostia Air Force Base or Naval Base Housing. I can't remember. Anacostia. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at, at Bellevue, Bellevue, I think it was Bellevue. Anyway, the, the, the base housing that was there right along the river and they could, they heard, my wife said she heard the explosion and she felt the ground shake and went outside and saw the smoke coming from the Pentagon. So, uh, that was after about three or four hours of not being able to get a hold of anybody thinking the world was about to end. So... I don't know, honestly, what was going on at 8th and I during uh, 9-11, but I can say that during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when I was there in 90 and 91, that Alpha Company, you know, there's Alpha and Bravo Company, and they're the guys that march the rifles. They do the little the platoons in the back. There's three platoons in Alpha, three platoons in Bravo, and, the, and they do the, the marching part of the parade. Alpha Company deployed as augments in support of Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And uh, because at 8th and I, they actually maintain a light infantry battalion. They have an armory there under the under the parking garage, and they maintain weaponry for a light infantry battalion. At least they did back then. I don't know what it's about now. But I can speak to that during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But I don't know. I don't know what happened. Uh, at eight and I, I just know that we couldn't get air uh, transport, you know, because the skies were closed down, and we ended up having to charter buses all the way back to D.C. from Cherry Point. 
and then once we got home, you know, it was it was uh, President Bush on the TV saying we we heard you and, and we're going to get them and blah 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 blah, and then we entered the years long war that yep. we're all familiar with. <laughs> and then um, so in in 2004, my last season, uh, having been told that I couldn't uh, stay in that unit anymore, I talked to uh, MMEA, uh, in, which is enlisted assignments, and I looked for uh, jobs, you know, MOS's jobs that I could lat move into as a staff sergeant because I accepted. I accepted NJP as a staff NCO. They could not demote me. Um, the only way you can get demoted as a staff NCO is by court martial, <clears throat> because yep. you're appointed. You're appointed to the staff NCO ranks by a general officer, commandant, or whatnot. And the only way you can be demoted is through a general court martial or something of the of the fact where it's more than a commanding officer. It has to be a a, a, a flag officer or higher. So I knew that based on counsel from the, uh, the JAG office. He says, you might as well accept NJP. At least you get to keep your rank and you can stay in. And if you get reclassed and you get beyond this, you can actually make it to retirement. So that was my thought process. I'm going to find an MOS that I can flat move into and, and uh, you know, try and make it to retirement. That's what I did. I, uh, I, Talked to the 6100 Arkfield sponsor, uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant uh, Williams, I think was his name. Mm-hmm. And he looks at he looks at me and he goes, "What in the hell makes you think that you're ever going to get promoted again?" And I said, "Well, I'm not counting on ever get promoted again. I'm just counting on retirement." And he goes, "Okay." So I uh, I reenlisted to go into the V22 as a 6156, an airframer. Woo! Yeah, buddy. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I checked in at 204 uh, in January of 2007. And uh, let's see, as a staff sergeant going through the same schools as PFCs and Lance Corporals, it's very interesting to say the least. Uh, my instructors were all sergeants. So there were no games. I just went there for the curriculum and got a check in the block and finished a school in Pensacola and then came back to 204. And I think that's when I went down to corrosion. Um, I don't know if I had gone to corrosion before or after C school, but I can't remember, but yeah. maybe it was after C school, but I had already gotten all my level threes done and I was starting my CDI. Uh, syllabus before I even freaking went to C school. So it's something to be said for being a musician and using both halves of your brain, I guess. That's, that's always a plus and it's uh, greatly rewarded in the air wing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not me. <laughs> I got, I got stuck in maintenance control the rest of my fucking career, but well, that again, was your reward for having a good brain. I know. Right. Yeah, just stick him in control. He'll stand up one squadron after the next. It was funny. I remember, I remember checking in at two hundred four, and even though my orders said sixty one fifty six, the description of the MOS 
was fruit chief. What? So I went up. Yeah, it was weird. I went upstairs to second deck. You know, because I didn't know what MOS was what from the next. So I went upstairs, and you know, this staff sergeant was walking into to. Um, it was um, Don Lozano and William Sales were the uh, flight line crew chief instructors upstairs in that back corner where they did the school where they taught crew chief. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, I think Lozano was actually on his way down to maintenance control and or he was checking out going to 263 or 264 or something. I can't remember. But <clears throat> I checked into airframes. They, they said, well, you belong downstairs. So I went downstairs and checked into airframes and it was uh, Gunny Oakley. I remember him. I loved him. Gunny Oakley was the airframes division chief. And um, and that would have been 263, the Thunder Chickens, because they were the first one to stand up and then it was 162 after that. Right, right. I remember uh, Colonel Rock took 263 out when I was at 204. Um, yeah, so that's when I met you, Bates, Nixon, freaking uh, Kruger, Mercado, all those guys in corrosion control. And I remember Sergeant uh, Holly, old 46 guy, he was the corrosion control staff in CIC and they had an inspection and everything was all gooned up in corrosion, so they sent me down there to straighten it out. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was definitely interesting, and he didn't give a fuck about us to the point where when he found out my first name was Steve, he's like, no, your name's Dave. You look like a Dave. I'm like, what? Just told you my first name. <laughs> he's like, no, no, you look like a Dave. You're definitely a Dave. You're fucking with me. I'm like, dude, what yeah, the hell? <laughs> I think he still lives in uh, Jacksonville. Yeah. I'm yeah, not surprised. He still lives there. But, and do you remember when we had the, the smoky incident when the bird went down and shot a, a PEL in the field and then they tried to lift off and lit the grass on fire and ended up melting the wing? I think I do. Was that yeah, the one that was like, down by Holly Ridge? Yeah. It was, it was, uh, we went out there with the sawzall and cut the, cut the nacelle off the wing. I think I do remember that one because that was, was that yeah. the one that was right about the Marine Corps birthday and I had duty for that at the aircraft? Uh, probably. Yeah. I put yeah. you on duty and you had to stay out there in the field with it. Yeah. Well, it was me and Kruger, <laughs> so it was fun. <laughs> yeah. We went out there with the backpacks full of wax. Remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sprayed everything down. Yep. That was fun. That's so when we did that, when we did that and we brought all that mess back down there to the, the mouse hangar down there on the end, Captain Adams was the MMCO and Sergeant Law was the maintenance chief down in control. And mm-hmm. when, we, when we loaded that thing up on the low boy and pushed it into the landfill over, over at Lejeune, you remember that? No. No, you don't remember that. Yeah. No, I might have. I might have been out for that because I got out midway through two thousand eight. Oh, did you? Yeah, you were gone by then. Yep. 
So sometime in 2009, we were tasked with disposing of that thing. <clears throat> and still being at, in corrosion, I was the ERT, you know, leader per the MMP. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we dumped that thing in the landfill over at Lejeune and they buried it within 24 hours. And Captain Adams wanted to know who the hell did this and how did they get it done so quickly? And what in the hell? Why didn't I know anything about it? And this, that, and other thing. This is amazing. Get this Marine down in maintenance control. And there I went. So I ended up going to maintenance control. And I remember laughing at myself when I first checked into 204. I didn't even know what math stood for. I didn't even know the acronym. <laughs> they teach you all of that through all the schools. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. ASM and everything else first came online back then, too. So we were scanning all of our pencil whip map maps into ASM, into this new system that they still use and still curse at today. <clears throat> yeah, I did hear that, uh, that, that you know, map map sign-offs and all that stuff is all computerized now. I'm like, wait, so you don't have a training jacket? Like... What is this? They do, but it's all electronic now, yep. <sighs> Aviation skills maintenance. I mean, on one hand, that's, it's like, that sounds, that makes sense, so then you can, you know, send it over to another unit if you go somewhere else, but on the other hand, it's like, ah, sign-offs for that have just got to annoy people. Yeah, I still, I still have my old training jacket in my desk, even at work now. I pull that thing out and slam it on the desktop. <laughs> Remember when? Boom. Dramatic effect. I'm this old. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know me. I'm, I'm always about drama. I used it probably my first year in this job, so like 10, 12, no, it was probably, yeah, closer to the 12 years ago. So two of the guys that started this company were Navy submariners, and, like, they were trying to, like, start, like, a training jacket, like, file sort of thing for, like, yeah. skills in the company. And like, I'm just like, this is just so horrible. I'm like, hold on. So like the next week I come back and I just bring that in. I'm like, it should look something like this organized and like showed it to him. And he's just like, I agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because one of them was an officer. I don't remember, remember exactly what the other guy was electronics maintenance. So part of what they had to do on the submarine mm-hmm was memorize everything. So, like, imagine avionics, but for a submarine. Yeah. So he had to, like, memorize all of that. And then, like, he retired from it from 20 years. And so for a while, he was also running their schoolhouse. So he was also really good at teaching people, like, just general skills and stuff, too. Right. Like, he broke down stuff for me. And a job what? I said it sounded like he made a job for himself when he got out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was uh, very good with electronics, and he could uh, teach all of us, like, anything about it, like, within 30 minutes, and I was just, like, amazed that he taught me some stuff that I still remember to this day, and I'm just like, yeah, Jerry taught me. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that I think about when I when I reflect back when I made that initial lap move out of the music field into aviation, and... uh I forgot to put in that I did two years at 2nd Marine Division before I came to 204 because I left 8th and I in in 2004 and I checked into 2nd Marine Division band 
So I actually was in the band all of about two years because when you get an NJP, you have to do what's called an FFO for future observation, for further observation. It's like a probationary reenlistment, mm-hmm. and they only grant it they only grant it to you for two years. So if you stay out of trouble for the you know the twenty four months, then you can either reenlist or you can do what I did, and I was like in the band at Second Marine Division and. As soon as I got down there, I deployed to Iraq in 2005. And before I deployed to Iraq, I was going to all these uh, training courses and classes. I went to enhanced marksmanship training. I did uh, convoy operations. I did mount site training. I did all of these things that made me have at least a general working knowledge of what it is I might have to do when I went to Iraq. So I go to Iraq and the band, the, the, at least the division bands, second Marine division, third Marine division, first Marine division, whatever, they perform uh, augmented guard security details for the forward uh, commanders. So, we were the guard company at Camp Blue Diamond for two MEF forward. So we had um, Lieutenant General Ho, H-O-U-G-H. He was the two MEF, uh, or not Lieutenant General, uh, uh, what's a two-star? Be my major general. I still major remember general it as Huff. be my little general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he was the two-star at two MEF, and... Sergeant Major Hemsworth was the two mass sergeant major forward there at Blue Diamond. So we would do uh, convoy ops every time the general wanted to go visit the, you know, the FOBs. So Blue Diamond was a FOB and it was on the Euphrates River. We had Hurricane Point on the other side of the, of the uh, dam from Blue Diamond. And then we had... Um, <clears throat> We were in Ramadi, so there was a, a, a base in Ramadi that was also another FOB. Then every time we go out the gate, we get shot at and, you know, mortared and pinned inside these, you know, it's just like watching that uh, Black Hawk Down in Somalia where they get pinned in the buildings and people shoot at them and it just be, you know, melee and shit. And then I ended up being the guard commander for the interior guard. So we had these different towers in the guard uh, inside the compound. And um, I'd go around all these towers monitoring my my sentries and my guards. And, you know, when you're doing that sort of job, you get the 10% of the 10%. And you want to talk about being in corrosion control. It was very similar to that where you would get all the individual augments that were the 10% of the 10% of those units that sent them to us in order to augment the guard force. So the band only had so many people as part of their table of organization, their TO, their, their, their main body. And so we would have to get all these augments to come in and support the interior guard because we had three platoons. I was in charge of one platoon. We had another staff sergeant um, that was in charge of another platoon. And then we had, um, actually we had three staff sergeants, but one of the staff sergeants had to go back early because he had orders that 
I don't know how it happened while he was over there. He still managed to get pushed over there, but then he had to send him back early. And then we had a uh, senior sergeant, Sergeant Tafoya, that uh, was in charge of the other platoons. It was myself, Staff Sergeant Jason Knuckles, and uh, Sergeant Tafoya, that we were the guard commanders of the different platoons. But I did that for um, about 10 months from February of – 05 until October of 05 and then they sent us back to the States and then there was some more political bullshit that happened when I was in the 2nd Marine Division Band. Um, I got sent back to the School of Music that I went to when I way back in the 80s when I first enlisted. I had to go there as a basic musician uh, in order to you know, the German Bugle Corps actually had to go to the to the basic musicians course back then. They don't do that anymore. They go straight to the barracks. Um, but I had to go back to the School of Music to do um, <clears throat> the unit leaders course, the ULC course, mm-hmm. as a staff NCO. But the horn I was playing was not the horn that I had been playing for the last 17 years in the German Bugle Corps, off and on you know, over the time I was in and the time I was out. And it was a different ear. It was a different pitch. And even though I played it in high school and I auditioned on it in high school, I could not for the life of me, you know, I was good enough to march up and down the street and do the fucking, you know, Yahoo parades up and down Jay Vegas slappy drive, you know, for Veterans Day and that kind of crap. But I wasn't good enough to play the horn to the level of proficiency, which they had a a 4.0 grading scale and it was 3.0 or higher for E6. And I, I couldn't play my way out of a 275. <clears throat> so I was administratively dropped from the school of music and sent back to the unit <clears throat> two months later. And the E9, the bandmaster, uh, Master Gunnery Sergeant Michelson, had me do these proficiency auditions every 30 days. And if I couldn't pass and I couldn't play, he started the process for trying to kick me out of the Marine Corps due to being inproficient. Well, I was like, fuck you, motherfucker. You're feeding um, alcohol to underage minors when we're on TAD. So fuck you. I'm taking you to task to the battalion sergeant major. So <laughs> I said, I'll be damned if I get fucked over by another unit. So this time I had nothing to lose with an NJPN grade. I'm going to stand my ground and whatever happens, happens. And sure enough, they dismissed him and sent him up to headquarters Marine Corps to push pencils the rest of his career because he, you know, he was a master guns. They take care of their own. Right. Right. <clears throat> and I said, you know what? Fuck you. I'm signing a rebuttal to this double signed fitness report. And it went up to the chief of staff who happened to be a full bird colonel. And I wrote eight pages of rebuttal and I threw the master guns under the bus and the master guns. And, and I came to an agreement that, uh, we would drop it, and I got reclassed as a V-22 airframes guy. So I forgot about all that. Shows <laughs> you how old I'm getting. That's fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we were a band of misfits down in the down the hallway at 204, buddy. A band of misfits. See what I did there? <clears throat> um, yes. I did. Yeah. So that's why I got along with you fuckers. <laughs> Maybe Bates was right. We were criminal control. <laughs> We were, we were absolutely criminal control. And I was just trying to, you know, be a squirrel trying to get a nut and, and make it to 20. And, and sure enough, I did. And 
coming coming to the B twenty two program was the best thing I could have ever done. And that conversation with Master Gunner Sergeant Williams, the sixty one hundred Oxfield, you know, you might not ever get promoted again. I said, Well, I don't care. I want to make it to retirement and I did. And in two thousand ten I got orders to California. Um, it was my seventh or eighth but look at gunnery sergeant and they were like not no but hell no and i saw the writing on the wall so i just put my nose to the grindstone and started applying myself and i i got really good at what i was doing in maintenance control and one of the v22 fst leads at miramar caught sight of it uh i had some of the best readiness for the three squadrons that i was a part of as a controller and he said, I've got a great job for you when you retire. Because I was going to, you know, when you do the SEPS TAPS, I don't know what they call it now, TERS or something like that, TRS. But when you go do that class that they teach you how to be a civilian and write your resume and do all that crap before you get out. I went and took that class and Burlington Northern Santa Fe was a big, uh, you know, company that would come to those things and they would always take everyone's resumes and they took my resume and they're like oh we want you to you know you're from texas you grew up in texas well you want to move back to texas and i'm like yeah i want to move back to texas and so they were like trying to get me to go down to waco and work in the phase yard where they would take all the rail cars and phase them and bust the rust and repaint them and mm. you know do the same shit we do during a phase or a 365 day or whatever you know yeah and i Right before, literally two months before I got my DD-214 and, and retired at 20 years, um, this FST guy sat on the corner of my desk and he goes, what are you doing when you retire? And I said, well, what am I doing when I retire? And he says, I got a really good job for you. And he's like, what's that? He goes, I want you to be the class desk. I'm like, the class desk? What the hell is a class desk? And uh, he says, well, um, every type model series, B-22, 53, H-1s, whatever, fixed wing, rotary wing, whatever. Every TMS out there has what's called a TICOM, you know, because we're Department of the Navy. And a TICOM is a type series commander. And a type series commander is usually a GS, a government employee, that in uniform sits next to a uniformed TICOM, and the two of them control every aspect of the operation of the aircraft. They delegate what aircraft go to what squadron, what configuration of aircraft are at what squadron, what, I mean, every, you know, deferrals, one-time flight deviations, um, MOT extensions, all that kind of stuff that you have to do when it comes to the management of the aircraft and the airframe itself. They have this TICOM. And the TICOM has to have people on site to represent them. So I got nominated for this job, not because of necessarily what I knew or who I knew, because who I knew got me the job, but the my I think what credited me with getting the job was not that I was the most qualified for the position, but I was the most detailed and anal and OCD kind of guy that came from maintenance control background, production control background that was needed in a job like that. So the guy that used to do the job was told, 
hey, you know, the contract's not being renewed. You're not getting extended. You need to go find a job somewhere else. And then it was actually bought out by another company and they hired me to do the job. So literally, <clears throat> I hung up my uniform March 22nd, 2013. That was my retirement ceremony. Uh-huh. And the very, the very next Monday, I put on blue jeans and came to work. Uh, while I was on terminal leave, and I double dipped for about ninety days. Oh, that's and awesome! And I, I just recently celebrated my ten-year anniversary working at this job, so I must be doing something right. So it all worked out for me, man. I would say that did. I remember yeah, so they, I, I worked a site in uh, San Diego, and I came and visited you one day. And you like you showed me around the hangars and all that stuff. I'm like, into an area. Awesome. I'm get, I'm getting into an area where it's getting spotty. Okay. So if I so if I lose you, I'll call you right back. Okay. I'm going between these mountains that we have here in California, and sometimes it clips out on me. I got so, that problem in a few spots that I know of too. So only be a couple of minutes though, but all we right. can keep talking in the meantime. Sounds good. But yeah, I remember I remember you coming out. And you and I hanging out not long after I took the job. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I remember you were close to getting out and like just luck of the draw. I was like, I'm pretty sure he's still around here. Cause where our site was, cause me and Ryan were working at just building it, but we were under the flight <laughs> path of where the birds would take off. So like we'd see it. The Ospreys, the jets fly out, and we're just like, "Oh man, that's we did that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't remember it being before I got out, but maybe it was. Wow. You had you had duty that day. <laughs> I did. You did. You had duty that day. Because <laughs> it was like wow. at night, and you're just like, "Yeah, I'm on duty tonight." I'm like, oh, "Okay." Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. There's a lot of things I've forgotten, man. I'm not going to lie. I I just turned 54 years old, and my brain doesn't work like it used to. Well, for you, it was another day, and, I, hey, I got to see a guy I used to work with, and for me, it was like something totally out of the ordinary than I do every other day, than I do every day. So, yeah, like, it, it was true. like a memorable thing versus you, I could understand it being lost in the malaise of, oh, where was I when that happened? Well, I... I do remember seeing you, though. I, I just don't remember the time frame, so I apologize for that. That's okay. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. No. It was what like, else? So how many – you did? You stood up three squadrons, so you were a plank holder for three? Yep. That's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Yep. But back then, it was just a thing. Everybody was doing it. <laughs> I mean, if I would have stayed in, I would have gotten at least one. But I mean, that's—I still think that's pretty awesome. Like three is better than none. Yeah, I had two back surgeries though. I had my first one at two hundred four in two thousand eight, mm-hmm. and then I had another one. I had a revision of the same surgery once I got out to California in two thousand ten. So, uh, I never actually got to deploy with the B twenty two because of my limited duty statuses that were just mixed. And then when they stood up the two squadrons in Okinawa, 
the squadron that I was a part of that went to Okinawa, um, I didn't have enough time on my contract because I didn't make it to Gunny, so I couldn't execute orders to Oki. So I ended up staying here, and I stood up 363. 363 was a CH-53 Delta squadron, and when they came back, they were in Hawaii, and when they came back from their deployment in their Deltas, they landed at Miramar, and we stood them up at Miramar as an MV squadron, the Red Lions, and then not soon after I retired, I was the very first retiree out of VMM 363, and then they went to uh, Okinawa and stood up uh, BMM 265 with all of the aircraft from five or from 363. Or see here, here goes my memory again. It was either 262 or 265. The numbers are so close. We'll forgive you. Yeah, yeah. So 363 stood up 265, and 561 stood up 262, or the other way around. I don't remember. But there was all this money for all these VMMs, and then all of a sudden they cut funding for like two of the VMMs, and they were absorbed into 363. And um, Yeah, I remember you telling me when I came out to visit you that time that Bruins stood up or started standing up a squadron in Okinawa, and then something happened where it folded. And I, I lost specifics of what exactly happened, but basically he yeah. didn't get to stand up that squadron anymore and went somewhere else. Yeah, so 262 and 265 are the VMMs in Okinawa now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were byproducts of 363. 363, no, they were byproducts of 561 and that other squadron that you're referring to. 363 actually went back to Hawaii with 268. So there's two in Hawaii now at K Bay, 268, 363, and then there's two in Okinawa, 262 and 265. They're all part of First, First Marine Air Wing. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Big mess. <laughs> All right. So I do want to uh, go back in time a little bit. And I know you worked with mine and a lot of other guys' favorite Marine ever, Lieutenant Colonel Gold. Oh, my God. Stu Gold. The yeah. best and most motivating Marine I have ever met. And, uh, what can you tell us about him? Because I know he's no longer with us. Yeah. And Stu Gold, what I remember of him, he was one of those LDO lieutenant colonels that we were talking about earlier. Okay. Um, I was going to ask that when you brought that up. I was like, no, I'm just going to get later. Yep. Okay. Yep. Stu was, Stu was a limited duty officer, uh, 6004 uh, AMO. Um, he was the AMO at 204. That was his last duty station. Stu Gold enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1973. Was he in Vietnam? Because someone told me he was. No. No, he was not in Vietnam. Vietnam had ended right about the time he came in. Okay. There was still a presence in Vietnam into the mid-70s, but not the full-scale escalation, the war 
the, the, the conflict itself had ended by the time he joined the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. But, but he did the same career progression as any of the other guys that go LDO. He started out going to A school, then going to C school. He was, you know, uh, a 6,100 maintenance Marine by trade. He made it all the way up to the rank of gunnery sergeant, and then he he switched over to warrant officer candidate school and went to TBS, and he was a warrant officer for uh, – he was a WO and then a chief warrant officer too. And I think I don't think he made it to CWO3. I could be wrong. But then he was given the chance to become an LDO captain. So that's exactly what he did. And he went from captain all the way up to lieutenant colonel. And myself and – uh, it's funny, funny you mentioned him. My, myself and now Major Mike Smith. I don't know if you remember him, uh, Staff Sergeant. I'm sorry, Staff Sergeant Trevor Smith. He's now Major Trevor Smith. The name sounds uh, familiar, but I can't put a face with that. Okay, so there was Trevor Smith, Brian Kendall. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a handful of sergeants, Sergeant Ryan. Um, oh God, I can see their faces. I just can't remember. All of us were in maintenance control. Dorisky, um, Proctor, uh, oh, Phillips, um, Sales, all those guys back then, that generation, a lot of those guys went the same route that Lieutenant Colonel Gold did. And now they're all like, like Mike Dewey. You remember Chief Warrant Officer Dewey at 204? He's now a lieutenant, Mike Dewey. He he took over. Um, I think Rob Birkins was the chief warrant officer when you were still on active duty down in maintenance control. Chief warrant officer Birkins. I don't, I don't know, remember. Anyway, I only remembered. Anyway. I only remembered Stu Gold. Yeah, so I'm trying to draw parallels between all these guys and Stu Gold because they all went the same route for their career. But the thing I remember most about Stu Gold is during his maintenance meetings. Yes. Down there in AS, what was it? AS 504 was our building, the old 204 hangar. Uh, He would stand in in that room and he would go, he would pontificate. He He would have the last word and he would pontificate and he would say, Marines remember most of all, baby steps in the right direction, head on a swivel, antenna up. I will never forget that. I will never forget that as long as I live. And I forget a lot of shit. But he would always conclude his maintenance meetings with that, you know? Yes. I did forget about that. one foot in front of the other. But I went to his retirement ceremony. He invited myself and Trevor Smith and a lot of the gunnies and uh, senior staff sergeants to his retirement. He came to my going away party. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah. I saw him once out here on the West Coast after he had retired. He was a, a consultant for some um, for some uh, aviation support contract, and he was, uh, you know, like 53s or something, and he came out here. I remember seeing him walking around. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Jesus Christ himself. He's walking the flight line, you know, and <laughs> I went right. out there and said hello to him and then come to find out he passed away. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I remember you told me that he passed away, or maybe I saw it on Facebook from a post you had, and I was just yeah. like, oh, man, he was the best. Well, it, it, and, and I had the same feelings of, of 
because he was like a father to a lot of us. He was so much older than you guys, and he was even older than me. And right. so I still looked up because he was in his sixties when he was the AMO at two hundred four. Man, he was and out there. running three quarters of the squadron, dude, and doing those pull ups, man. Yeah. I, I mean, the guy was a beast, and and I kid you not, I remember him being a father figure, and that's exactly the same way I think of Truman Crawford, the director of the Commandant's Own in Washington D.C. He was the same way. He was so much older than everyone else, and when the guy would talk. People would listen. It was like an E.F. Hutton commercial. Everybody would stop in their tracks, and they would listen to what this guy had to say. <coughs> it wasn't just yeah. what he was saying. It was also how he was saying it. Like, it just, like, it's not like, give yeah. me your respect. It's just, like, it just exuded yeah. the confidence and knowledge of yeah. everything he was conveying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The voice of experience. The voice of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. He was a solid man. Had a beautiful family, wonderful children, great kids, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a solid dude. And I said, maybe someday I'll grow up and be just like him. So, yeah. Well, Very it few sounds people like you're doing great. Man, I, I'm, I'm doing so good. I am living, you know, no cliche, my best life. It took me until I reached the age of 50 to get my head out of my ass, but I finally did it. I finally met someone after three divorces, my friend. I finally met someone that was strong enough in her own individual way to be strong enough to deal with me in all of my individual ways and not put up with the maniacal... PTSD, I'm a career Marine, this is my way or the highway, knife hand tactic bullshit that we're all familiar with. Yes. You know, she she was strong enough to see through it all and strong enough to make me see through it all, which says a lot. <laughs> so That, that yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, I see you online, I see your pictures and like all your posts and stuff and like, no, like you look legit happy, like in your life and wife or girlfriend? I was so, I was so, well, she's my wife now. Yeah. We got married on March 23rd. Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess I missed that. Post. Yeah. We, we, we were, well, I didn't broadcast it. It wasn't something that, you know, a lot of people are all about the, the hullabaloo and the pomp and circumstance and the theatrics of it all. And I've learned by being with her that, it's not about all that. It's, it's about the people in your, in, in your, in your most direct circle. And, you know, they say, as you get older, you make your circle smaller and your, uh, it is my circle is her and I, mm-hmm. you know, she has two wonderful, wonderful daughters that just turned 18. They're seniors in high school and they're getting ready to graduate and get on with their lives. And, you know, it's our time now. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, I made it to 54. I'm doing all right. Not doing too bad. I got a great job. I got a great uh, wife. I have a wonderful support network. Um, I'm a new grandfather. Um, Congratulations. My my eldest daughter, Taylor, made me a granddad this past year. Nice. Very cool. Uh, my, my, middle, my middle daughter, Ashley, is getting married at the end of this year, so we're looking forward to that. And my son, Cameron, he's... Uh, 
still single, living and working in Oregon. All three of them still live in Oregon. So, yeah, everything's good, man. Everything's really good. Whereabouts in Oregon? Ryan's from there. Uh, they live in the outskirts of Portland, in the suburbs of Portland proper. Okay. Down south of uh, Portland. They, uh, Ashley lives in, in uh, Tualatin. Um, Taylor lives in, well, she used to live in Wilsonville, but she moved a little further south. Sherwood. She lives in Sherwood. And my son lives uh, I think he lives in Sherwood as well. He used to live down in Salem, but he moved back up to Sherwood. So, yep. Yeah, that's one of the West Coast states that I've not been to yet, and I'm doing it a disservice by not going. Yeah, it's it's very very green. It rains, you know, eight nine months out of the year, and you don't see the sun very often, and you tend to grow web feet uh, because it's so wet. But it is some of the most beautiful country. Um, as far as evergreens and all that stuff, um, the twilight, <laughs> the vampire movie shit. Yeah. No, actually like where I live, the Western part of New York state <laughs> actually has more gloomy days than anywhere else in the country. So I think Oregon would be an improvement. <laughs> yeah. I, I did my fair share of time in Syracuse, uh, when I was in Washington, DC, uh, stationed at 8th and I, uh, I marched Drum Corps Associates, which is the 21 and over uh, Drum Corps organization above DCI, which is 13 to 21. Uh, I marched the Syracuse Brigadiers out of Syracuse, New York, and I did that for a couple of years. And every Friday night after the Friday night parades would, would be over, about three or four of us would all pile into a car and make that six-hour trip through Hershey, PA, all the way up to Syracuse. And we would march drum corps over the weekend and then turn around and drive all the way back. So, yeah, I've been all over the eastern seaboard and faint, and, and intimately familiar with all of the states on the eastern seaboard. Because that's where I spent, you know, the majority of my Marine Corps career until I came out here mm-hmm. to the West Coast. Yep. It's all been really good, man. It's all been uh, a book that I could write. So, <laughs> Yeah, it actually does sound like it. It was actually. What else you got, Stevie? What else you got, man? Tell me about your motorcycle club because I see a lot of cool fundraisers that you guys do, and it looks like you're also doing good things for veterans with that. Yeah, so um, a few years ago, one of the maintenance chiefs at VMM. 364 at Camp Pendleton, Master Sergeant Robbie Jenkins, retired. He called me and he says, hey, man, what are you doing? And I'm like, "Uh, nothing. He goes, why don't you get on your motorcycle and come with me? So I went with him and we went to this place in Temecula. Uh, I had a, a condo in Scripps Ranch just north of Miramar and when I uh, decided to buy a home because I figured out the job was working out good for me, I bought a house in Temecula. So I moved way up to Riverside County, which is about 55 miles from Miramar because it's cheaper up here and more affordable. The taxes are different and it's more of a red 
conservative area, believe it or not, in California. So I actually do um, believe that. No, I when know, I went I with Robbie, <coughs> go ahead. I said I know the area between L.A. and San Diego, more towards Orange County, is very Republican. And I believe that's yeah, yeah, yeah. where Ronald Reagan, is it Ronald Reagan Airport or is it Orange, or is it, uh, what's his name? John Wayne Airport is the name of the airport there. John, John Wayne Airport, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's also yeah, it's, where, on the 15, it's on the 15, yep. That's where Ronald Reagan, like, came out of politically, like, was that area of Southern California? I'm not absolutely sure, but it uh, sounds about right. I know he was an actor, then politician in California, don't know a lot of the specifics, then president. That is true. Uh, I, I was in the Marine Corps when Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. <laughs> yes. Yep. Bold. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so Robbie took me to the clubhouse. Uh, of this organization that I am now the vice president of. I was introduced to the Brotherhood of Marine Corps Writers back in 2017. Uh, It's a riding club. It's not a motorcycle club. So for those people that are out there listening that are familiar with MCs, motorcycle clubs, you are a prospect and you hang around before you become a prospect and the MCs are part of the Council of Clubs, and the Council of Clubs are all of the MCs in a specific area that meet, you know, once every quarter or once every six months, and they discuss the politics and the hierarchy, and it's kind of like an underground sort of thing, and usually the president of the Council of Clubs belongs to the local 1% club that uh, has dominion over the said territory where all of these people exist uh, together. Well, an RC, a riding club, and or the American Legion riders or somebody that's not labeled an MC, we don't have to play in that arena. We stay outside of it, but our, uh, our structure is kind of modeled the same. So as an RC, we are strictly a group of Marines, the Brotherhood of Marine Corps Riders. We are a group of Marines that provides a place of assembly for like-minded, sick and twisted, crayon-eaten individuals that are Marines and Fleet Marine Force Corpsmen, because as you know, Corpsmen are the, are the lifeblood and the lifesavers of the Marines yes. you know, when they're forward deployed. They wear the Marine Corps uniform, and they might as well be Marines themselves, except they made a mistake and joined the Navy. So anyway, we allow membership into our organization. We are a nationwide organization. We have chapters in a majority of the uh, cardinal directions of the contiguous United States. We even have a small group of guys over in Hawaii. Nice. So we have ch- we have chapters everywhere, and and the the mother chapter, the chapter that the club was formed out of, uh, was OTC, and what OTC stands for is Original Tustin Chapter. An interesting interesting point of information: the uh, 
HMH361 screw crew out of Tustin, California, the CH53 heavy lift squadron, mm-hmm. formed this club some 26, 27 years ago. And a lot of the uh, original members that formed the club uh, are not part of the club anymore, but there are two or three of them that are still in our ranks and, 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 and are active in our ranks. In fact, one of the original gangsters, one of the OGs out of 361, Tustin, is named William Gearhart, and he is the 53 class desk that works right next to me in the desk right next to me as the B-22 class desk. That's and pretty I didn't awesome. Even know, isn't that pretty awesome? I didn't even know that until after I had already been prospected to join the club. And I come walking in with my, what we call a cut, you know, your leather vest with your patch on the back and the meatball on the front. And I come walking in and he gives me this little chuckle. And I go, what's that about? He goes, sit down. I got a story to tell you. And it was just so weird. And here I am, you know, five years later and I'm the vice president. And, you know, so what we do is we raise money for the Semper Fi and America's Fund every year. Uh, this OTC specifically has a annual poker run around Armed Forces Day in, in the month of May. It's usually the third uh, weekend in the month of May. This year it'll be May 20th, our 19th annual run and uh, every year for the last decade or so we've given away a harley davidson motorcycle uh, we sell tickets at ten dollars a piece and if you buy a hundred dollars worth of tickets you get two free tickets thrown in but nice. every bit of every bit of this money uh goes toward the raffle it's every ten dollars is an is a is a chance to win to have your ticket stuff drawn to win the motorcycle but all of the money goes to the Semper Fi and America's Fund you know benefiting wounded service members and their families and we've donated over half a million dollars over the 19 years that we've been doing this so uh, this year May 20th we will be giving away a 2013 Road Glide Special probably the nicest bike I've ever ridden next to my own and uh, yeah so we're really excited we're still selling tickets and we'll be selling tickets up to the day of the drawing and you need not be present to win and if you're interested in getting some tickets you can look me up on facebook uh brian gaston or you can look me up on instagram uh however you want to get in touch with me you know facebook instagram uh i'm on linkedin you can look me up on linkedin and send me a message there too so yeah Right, yeah, I was going to ask you later if you wanted me to uh, put out social links for you, and it, this sounds like you do. <laughs> you can if you want, no big deal. I mean, it's up to you. They're your social links. Yeah, man, I can I can hit you up and let you post them if you want. That'd be great. Yeah, I can do that. And if there is there like a direct link for um, like buying them for your club we can put up too? We can do that if you'd like. Well, I usually do that directly, and then I take the cash and I give it to the treasurer, and he puts it in the pot with the rest of it. Awesome. It just makes it easier. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's... So who else? Who else? Who else are you going to talk to, man? Because I look forward to listening to your future podcast. Uh, I got to get down to North Carolina, and I'm definitely going to do 
Ryan Stumbaugh, my best friend. Uh, yeah. Hawes. He's Leon. Yep, Leon Leroy. He's still a really good friend of mine. We. Yeah. Uh, he's running the schoolhouse as a, a civilian for airframes through Boeing, I believe. That's awesome. Yeah. No, he's he's doing Here, really well. Uh, there, here's here's some names you might know. Brenton Webster. Yes, I know him. Um, Kenneth Mabe. I worked with him vaguely, or very mm-hmm. minimally, when we were at VMX. But I, I, right. I know his face and I know his name. Right. Um, oh, what's uh, you? You remember? Uh, oh, what was? Adam, Adam, Adam Wolf. At Adam. Oh, he he's an. You would not believe how many V twenty two guys are still in the program from back in our day at two hundred four. You would not believe how many guys are out there, dude. It's just crazy. The the the, the original guys that stood up the VMMs and and the Osprey community are out there still putting out. You know, they got beards and they live in Alabama or they live in, uh, you know, North Carolina to this day. Um, Don you know, Lozano, he's, he's the class desk at Mouse 26. He's been there for like 14 years now. Nice. Uh, William Sales works at, uh, at uh, Mouse 26 as an FST. There's just uh, Christopher Napier, Lance Aja. All those guys from back in the day, they're still doing it, man. They're still out here doing it. Do you know which We've one got, really well, impresses me, and he's a Marine I know that you know too? What's that? Daniel Nosek is an E8 now. Oh, no shit, Nosek. Oh, you haven't <laughs> seen that one yet? Like, Uh-uh. Oh, yeah. like You know you know Vladich? You remember Vladich? Uh, crew chief? Yeah. Yes. He, he is the no-shit program director for CMV, the Navy variant. He's Get out of town. way up there. He's way up there at Boeing, dude. Way oh, up there. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy to see just these guys that, you know, chewed the same dirt, wore the same nasty green coveralls, and were swimming in triple nickel and WTR all these years, and you know, fighting the good fight and, and doing all these red stripe messages that would down the fleet for each motors and all this fire door stuff and the crap that we were dealing with in the very beginning. And, and now they're out here just in charge of the program and it's just really exciting. To see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, Hey man, I'm a, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. My brother, I am rolling up in the driveway. So my hour and a half with you is complete. My friend. That's fine. Thank you for everything. And I'll get a hold of you later for like, you know, the follow-up stuff just for like write up <laughs> stuff. Absolutely. Brother. It was a pleasure speaking with you again. Hey, it's great to talk to you again too, Brian. Hey, if you ever find Nixon, let me know. <laughs> I'm friends with him on Facebook. Right on, dude. I'd love to talk to that cat. <laughs> All right. I'll see what I can do. All right, Augie. Semper right. Fi, brother. Semper Fi, man. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.